What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. I'm a librarian and educator by profession, but along with that, I'm also an artist. Through the years, I've found that when most people think about art and children, they automatically think of scribbles with crayons and stick figures balanced by smiling suns. But in today's classrooms, advocates of visual thinking strategies want us to see young people engaging with art in a much richer way. This means not only making art, but critically analyzing art at a very deep level. Visual thinking strategies ask for even the youngest children to view and critique great works of art using some very basic questions. What's going on in this picture? What do you see that makes you say that? And what more can we find? These questions ask children to engage with key literacy skills as they observe, describe, and give support or evidence. We've always asked children to engage with these skills as they read printed text. But in today's world, applying these skills to visual images is just as important. In fact, we can no longer expect that reading is just about words. We also need to develop the ability to read visual images, including drawings, paintings, photographs, and even film. But even if these skills were not essential in the world we live in, it is also important to note that research has shown that students with strong visual thinking skills also show significant improvement in math and reading, and they also have healthier social and emotional growth. While practitioners are trained in visual thinking strategies at a very sophisticated level, the reality is that any adult can help children with the basics, with just a trip to a museum or gallery and a little conversation afterwards. So building visual thinking strategies in children can be just as easy as planning your next family outing. And that's a little tip from here at Rachel's World. How much conflict can a child handle? And of course, we're talking first of all about conflict in a book or story, but then also in real life. Today, Rachel talks to author Tim Wynne-Jones about how his love of story got him started writing books for middle grades and young adults. We'll learn more about his emphasis on characters who encounter conflict and find their way to a successful resolution. Tim Wynne-Jones is an award-winning author of 34 books, including novels, picture books, and short story anthologies. Here's Rachel with Tim. We're in studio today with author Tim Wynne-Jones. So, Tim, let me start by asking you, how did it all start? What was it that really got you into writing books? You know, I just love telling stories, and um, I love the idea of, of spinning a story. Um, and it's interesting because my first three novels were adults, uh, for, were for adults, and they, were, they had stories in them. One of them was a... Um, uh, you know, well, two of them actually were. One was a thriller, and one was a mystery, and the third one was—I don't even know what it was—sort of a gothic book. It was very odd. Um, but anyway, the first three published books were were for adults, and then I kind of lost interest in writing for adults because a, a lot of contemporary adult literature it, story isn't as important as other things, you know. Um, and I think the one thing that is very true about children's literature, and this includes young adult literature, is 
the importance of there being a real story there. Um, I I just love uh, the arc of a story, you know, things getting worse and worse and crises come and then you reach the climax of the story and then there is some kind of um, hopefully satisfying denouement. And, and that, to me, that form calls to me. It's, it's, I, don't, I, I'm not, I don't want to write, uh, you know, piercing, navel-gazing kind of stories. Uh, that, that just isn't, I, I mean, they're not really stories, but just I don't want to write that kind of thing. I, and and I, I feel much, much more contented writing for um, a younger audience pr- precisely because of story. I agree with you totally. I think that's one of the beauties of children's and young adult literature is it gets that pure story. But at the same time, I think we can do some of that navel gazing and and deal with some of these hard topics. I know in your books, you don't shy away from that. No, I don't shy away. And I don't shy away from that at all. And I don't think this, uh, for me, uh, looking at how I I think all of my books uh, look at some kind of hard topic, but I don't want to, I don't want the book to ever become didactic I don't want it to be, uh, you know, here's your le- lesson to learn. I want it to be, if there's a hard lesson to be learned um, um, or, uh, you know, an important theme, I want the, the, the reader to be drawn into the, the story because they care about the character. I mean, I think the best thing that literature does, especially literature for children, is it engages the empathy of the reader. And to me, this is, you know, uh, I think that's the, the most extraordinary thing. Uh, you, you, you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And, the, and, you know, apparently, according to scientific research, when you empathize with a fictional character, you are engaging all of the same mental, um, you know, uh, I can't think of the word, but you're engaging the same uh, part of the brain that, is, is engaged when you empathize with real people in a real situation. So it, it's a kind of a wonderful way of learning to care about other people's um, uh, lives and other people's situations. And as I say, walking a mile in, in somebody else's shoes. And I think that this is an incredibly important part of Books for Children. So have you experienced that as you interact with your readers where you've seen them develop that empathy for your characters that you think has changed them in a fundamental way? I, I, I have very much. Um, one of my books, uh, The Maestro, one of my early novels for children, um, the boy was in a very abusive f- family situation. And I got lots of letters from um, young people who were in abusive situations themselves. And, um, and it really... Um, uh, and they and what was so amazing was that they were worried about my character, who was a fictional character, and they they were writing to say that they hoped he was okay. And of course, I realized that from what they were saying that they were in the same situation. And and so I, I was it was a little it was a little uh, at first I was a little scared. I hadn't run into that before, and I I felt the need to make sure that they were okay. Um, actually, you know, I realized as I'm saying this that that doesn't. It doesn't exactly answer your question, but um, no, when people write to me and say that they um, really care about, you know, a character in the book and are are so glad that they were able to get through what they were going through, I realize that they're talking as if it was a real person, and uh, 
Um, and that's really, that makes me feel very good. I bet it does. So have you ever placed your character in an extreme situation and were a little bit concerned about how it would be received by the public? Or do you not worry about that? You just write the story that needs to be told. Um, well, no, that's a really interesting point. I, I think you have to be very careful as a writer not to get sucked into writing, uh, uh, to thinking about your audience too much. Um, I have to write the stories that I write. Um, but the thing is, nobody in the world cares as much about my characters as I do. So if I'm going to do anything, uh, put them in, in, in harm's way, uh, you can be sure I'm going to be trying to think of how they can get out of harm's way or how they will grow from the experience. Um, I think one of the things that uh, sometimes worries people who don't read a lot is um, about children reading books that have a lot of conflict in them is that um, they worry that it will, you know, uh, upset the, the young reader. But the point about a book is is the resolution of the conflict. It The conflict is... Uh, uh, becomes the stakes of the book. What's at stake for this character? If there's nothing at stake for a, a character, um, there's, then there's nothing to overcome, and the book will undoubtedly be boring. I mean, the, tr the truth is that we want to see from the safety of our comfy chair or our bed at night, we want to be reading about somebody who's in peril, perhaps, but with the sense that he, that the character has the resources um, and and the help to to get through that peril, and that's a wonderful feeling of of, of success, you know. But you don't have success unless there is conflict that you have to overcome. That I think that's really important. We have to understand that conflict is particularly important to story. So, how do you make the conflict not seem too stressful or too overbearing or too didactic? Well. You know, it's, it, it, I mean, if you think about, you know, kids reading adventure stories where, you know, the character is clinging by his fingernails to the edge of a cliff or whatever, ever, we do like to be shocked and scared. I mean, I, I don't know why as a species. Maybe it goes back to when, maybe it's part of our, you know, ancient uh, heritage of, you know, having to keep an eye out for saber-toothed tigers or something. But we do like that frisson of, of fear that we get when, uh, when things in the story aren't going um, well. And I'm, uh, I'm, um, I'm pretty well convinced that kids are, are, can take a lot of that. Um, I, I don't want to ever go to the point where, it's, uh, where it gets really hideous, you know. I mean, I, that, that's not the point. The point is, uh, for me, that's something that's worth fighting for that um, is going to require, you know, a fight. And, uh, and I don't mean literally a, a, a fight in that sense. I'm talking um, metaphorically. But um, so there, it's not, I guess, I, I'm sorry, I'm blithering here. What I'm trying to get at, I think, is that uh, I when I'm writing a story, I have to put my characters through their paces. I have to make them work. I have to, there's an old saying, you know, you, our job as writers is to chase our character up a tree and then throw rocks at him. Um, and the point being that things have to get worse and worse, and that, but meanwhile, the character is figuring out 
how to deal with this thing and 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 they they uh they're going to find their way out of it the important thing uh, the, the important takeaway from all of that is that you have to just let yourself write the story and take the character through whatever you feel they need to go through in order to resolve the the conflict that you've put before them. Tim, it has been such an honor to speak with you today. I have really appreciated this and, and your insights. And and I will say I appreciate your talent. I have read not everything you've written, but a great majority of it. And I truly appreciate that you're sharing your great talent with the world and helping children grow and develop with your words. Rachel, thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you. It is lovely talking to you, too, and I hope someday you'll return to BYU and we'll actually get to meet in person. I would love to meet you. I've been there quite a few times, so I imagine I will be there again. We'll we'll have you back, most definitely. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been great talking to you. That was Rachel Wadham with Tim Wynne-Jones, award-winning author of Books for Children and Young Adults, talking about his love of story. Thanks for joining us today for Worlds Awaiting. Next, illustrator and author Julie Olson, what it takes to create a memorable character for a children's book and her journey to becoming an artist that began in childhood. Julie Olson has illustrated many books, including Discover America from Sea to Shining Sea, Dear Cinderella by Marianne Moore and Mary Jane Kensington, and Little Penguin, The Emperor of Antarctica by Jonathan London. Here's Julie and World's Awaiting host, Rachel Wadham. We're excited to have Julie today in studio. She is an artist and an illustrator of picture books. So let's chat a little bit, Julie, about picture books in general. What? Why did you just start illustrating picture books? Well, that's kind of a long answer to well, a well, short let's question. Go, let's, go, let's go the long answer. I want the okay, long answer. Okay, okay. So when I was little, um, I liked to draw. And I like to draw more of a story. So I would actually make the characters talk to each other while I was drawing them, even before maybe their heads were finished. They'd be talking to each other. And I had a large family. There were only two other kids on our street. We lived on a dead-end street. So we would play with those two other kids, but it was mostly my six brothers and two sisters that were involved in, in the play. Beyond that, as far as connecting it to books, we would create a library out of all of our books. We put the, and a lot of young kids now don't even know what they are, the cards and made a card catalog for all of our books and pouches, little envelopes inside the covers of the books. And so making a library of books, um, just enjoying so many books and actually enjoying drawing, I think laid the foundation for me to really want to illustrate books, but I got distracted a little bit in middle school and high school with all the other options there are to choose from. Got into music and computers became big and got kind of interested in that, but really went back to art because that's what I like to do in my free time. I didn't like to practice the musical instruments. I didn't really want to sit in a cubicle staring at a computer screen all day. So I my mom and dad were, were good counselors. And they're like, well, just what do you like to do when you have time to do whatever you want to do? And it really came down to just drawing. That's perfect. That's a great progression to get mm-hmm. there. 
walk us through a little bit about what it takes to make a picture book. So just the, the basic steps. I know, again, a, yeah. a short question for a long yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's process is different. And even my process changes sometimes from book to book. But there are some basic things that are definitely more standard that kind of happen. So when I get a picture book offer to do to illustrate a picture book, I'll talk about the illustrating process. I write them as well, but um, the process gets more muddled when I'm writing them. It goes more back and forth and it gets a little bit more, le- I guess, less structured. Uh, but when I'm illustrating, I will get an offer to illustrate a book and I'll get the manuscript and they say, do you want to illustrate this book? And I read the manuscript, and as I'm reading it, I start to brainstorm and doodle in the margins. And if it's bringing up images in my mind instantly, then I know it's probably a book that I'd be good illustrating. If it's not, if I'm having a hard time on the first read-through even picturing what I would do, then I've learned that I should say no to the job because it's going to be too hard if it's too hard in the beginning. It's a long process, a long six to 12 months of spending time with something if you can't, if you're struggling with it in the beginning. So after I've accepted the job, then I continue kind of with the the brainstorming of ideas and doodling of pictures. But I also have to ask the publisher what the parameters of the job are, the size of the book, if they have any preconceived ideas of what the characters or things specifically have to look like. So I don't have to go back and redo so much or even change the dimensions of my drawings because <laughs> they want a horizontal book, not a vertical one. Who knew? Anyway, I find out those. Then I do some research if it's required. The Little Penguin book that I illustrated required quite a bit of research because they had to look real but not photorealistic. So I'll, I'll do some research. And then I flesh out the characters, the main characters of the book, kind of decide what they're going to be like. I think about their hobbies, their interests, their things that that make them who they are. And even if that doesn't show up in the book, it kind of comes out in the way you draw them and in their mannerisms. Then I do thumbnail sketches, which are tiny little, probably two by one inch squares of sketches for the whole book. And I'll do multiple sketches per page. Then I go from the thumbnail sketches to the full-size sketches. The editor at the publisher doesn't see anything until that stage. So I finish the full-size sketches and I turn those in. And then they make their requests for changes. And I will do those changes and get approval, final approval, finally. Then I'll scan in those drawings. And I will sometimes do color comps. Then I print out the drawings on watercolor paper. I have an Epson printer that can print archival ink. And I've been so happy for the invention of that and of computers because in the beginning I'd have to transfer the drawing down and I would lose a lot of the life that I felt like my original sketches had. Also, if I mess up in the painting with watercolor, you can't cover up a mistake. And that's the medium I work in now. So if I mess up, then I can print out a new drawing and I don't have to start totally from scratch. Sometimes it feels like it, but um, I will paint them on watercolor paper and then I'll scan those paintings back in again and add some digital textures or uh, fix color here and there. Do some of those fixes that you can't do in watercolor on the computer 
and make those final adjustments and tweaks and add borders or whatever's required. And then I submit them to the publisher. And about six months later, I'll see the book. So that's the process in a quick nutshell. Perfect. I, and I really love that because I think a lot of people don't realize how complex the process is and how much goes into the process. Uh, you mentioned earlier you do write as well. So let's talk a little bit about that, especially conceiving of character. I think you, you talked about how you conceive of the character when you're painting, that you look and see what their hobbies are and other kinds of things. And so you know this background story that we may not see as a reader. So how is that process different when you've written the, the text than if you have somebody else conceiving of the character as an author? I think it's a little bit easier when you've written it yourself because the whole thing is taking place in your own mind. When... I receive the text, then I get what the author has written. However, sometimes there's little notes that no reader will ever see, specifically for the illustrator. And the editor only will include those from the author if they're pertinent to the plot of the story. Otherwise, it's just completely left to the illustrator's imagination. So often, as an illustrator, I will either add subplot or just totally add something that only the the author probably would have never even thought of or conceived which I hope doesn't make the author mad when I do that but <laughs> I I will add those things just to make the book a little bit more interesting and a true picture book yeah, I like that concept of the true picture book because really for me, a true picture book is that that has a really strong interplay between the text and the pictures. And they both tell the same story, but sometimes there's details in the text that aren't in the pictures and there's details in the pictures that aren't in the text. So how do you balance that? How do you find that good balance between what the text says and what the illustrations say? It's one of my favorite things to do, and it's one of my favorite things about a good picture book, is that interplay. I always tell people that if you can if you can read a picture book to somebody without showing them the pictures and they understand exactly every subplot, everything that happens in the story, then it's not really a picture book, it's a magazine story or whatnot. But that interplay where something's happening in the Tickle Tickle Itch Twitch book I wrote, the mouse in the story is only in the illustrations. It's never mentioned in the words. But he is the main antagonist to the story. He's the one causing the problem the whole way through. And you would never know that if you just read the words. You would just think that this groundhog has some odd itch that's just suddenly appearing on his back for no apparent reason. And the illustrations are necessary in that instance to tell the story. And I always try to add something like that if I can in a book. Sometimes it's not allowed in informational books or something like that, but yeah. some little something that that sets it apart and gives it that extra storyline. Well, and that's an interesting kind of contrast because you do do informational books as well as like fiction. So how is the process a little bit different? Because for me, even in nonfiction, there are characters like your Penguin book. Those are as much characters as, you know, Annie McRae or anybody like that. So how do you, what are the differences between those kind of two genres and how do you approach that? Well, I do a lot more research, as I said, for the informational books. Um, however, I did want to make, in the Little Penguin one, I did want to make the penguin a lovable character. And because without making a character have some childlike qualities, children aren't going to connect with the book. 
And that's very important for picture books for children to connect with it and to so that they do um, in, get engaged and get something out of it. And the little penguin, I did things in, I, I gave him a little tuft of fur on the top of his head that kind of stuck up like a, we, we always call them an alfalfa sprout. Growing up, I grew up in the Midwest. I don't know <laughs> what they call them here, but just this little tuft of hair that stuck sticks up and no other penguins in the book have it. And to set him apart from the other penguins and, because penguins kind of all look alike when they're grown up and whatnot. And so this little guy had to have something different. So tiny little things like that I would um, will add to to a character to make them different from someone else. Well, and that's interesting, too, because you said earlier you spend like 12 months, 18 months with some of these books. So just some... Do you add some of those things just for you to kind of keep you interested in, in drawing these over and over again? Probably, probably. <laughs> and and to make, yeah, to make my own connection with the book and to make, I guess, give my own stamp on the book. Even I've done a lot of educational market books as well. And to p- try and put a little bit of yourself into it as much as you can without getting, I guess, caught in those instances. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of it, did you just hate drawing like penguins? You're like, I'm never going to draw another penguin. (laughs) You want to take a break, but you're pretty... Yeah, I'm glad to see them again when they come out. That's that's wonderful. And you have done, you know, such a wide range of things. Do you prefer a particular kind of story or do you gravitate to some kind of particular context or character or how do you make those decisions when you said like you were you look at the manuscript and you try to decide if that's going to fit my visual perspective? How how do you decide that? Well, I have decided I'm not a funny person. I'm not <laughs> that witty. <laughs> Um, I do love the classic picture book, the classic story arc, and uh, that's kind of how I decide if it if it speaks to me, I'll I'll do it. So just quickly describe that classic story arc. What do you mean by that? You have a character who has a main problem, and they try to solve that problem, and in the end, they are the ones who figure out how to solve the problem. So you're very problem oriented and solution oriented. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> That's that's a wonderful thing, but I I think there's definitely something to be said too for children who want that as well. They they want that kind of problem and solution in their books. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for visiting with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Rachel Wadham here on Worlds Awaiting, talking with illustrator Julie Olson about her creative process. Now, we finish up the show with some delightful nonsense poetry by Lewis Carroll called The Jabberwocky, read by Katie Jarvis. The Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the groves and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxome foe he sought. Then rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And while in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tall gene wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead. And with its head, he came galumping back. 
And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Oh, come to my arms, my beamish boy, O oh, frabjous day, Kaloo, Kalay! He chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the border groves, and the mome rats outgrave. That was Katie Jarvis reading The Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Poetry can be a great fit for children, especially when it introduces them to music, language, and emotion. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>